Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. I would recommend to hear from a more diverse group of voices. Like it doesn't necessarily just have to be your teacher talking to you in the classroom. It was never mixed into other coursework. You didn't approach everything with an environmental perspective like a lot of classes I have now do. It was more just, here's a small section in this entire class that we talk about climate change. What I think would really go above and beyond is if we're taught more about climate action, meaningful climate action in pretty much every single subject. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... Just the whole way the school system is set up. There's so many, you know, keywords like clickbait words like sustainability that just get lumped into the environment, green. But definitely, if there was that focus on taking out the core meaning of the word, the core meaning of the practice, and applying that not just in your science class, not just if you're in an environmental program, but as a foundation. episodes 23 and 24, we hosted a panel of three Gen Z youths to talk about green jobs. Here, we feature separate discussions with three more Gen Z youths, this time to talk about climate change, sustainability, and reciprocity in education. Though these three voices do not necessarily represent the collective voice of an entire generation, we wanted to ignite a conversation about environmental education by featuring first-person accounts and stories from current and recent students. You will hear from each guest twice. First, to learn about their experiences with environmental education, and then to hear their suggestions for improvements. Ian began by meeting with Patricia Sun. Patricia's educational journey is diverse, having begun in California, before shifting to Hawaii for middle and high school, and then moving cross-border to Montreal, Canada's McGill University, where she studies environmental science. Was high school the first time that you learned, at least in school, about climate change? That's a good question. I would say that I learned about climate change indirectly, like since, you know, kindergarten, but I didn't necessarily know all the different things were like I was just told you know recycling is good but I didn't necessarily understand the implications of it and I would say that I didn't really truly understand climate change and all the different processes until you know my senior year of high school in AP environmental science. What did you cover in that course? It's equivalent to um, Environment 200, which is the very beginning course of university at McGill for the environment program. So it just covers like uh, more uh, the terms used, like, you know, what is an estuary, you know, how does different processes work, like the, you know, hydrologic cycle, that kind of thing. 
but I didn't really learn about like the movements in different countries or the bigger ideas until I came to university. And when you say movements in different countries, do you mean movements of air currents, ocean currents, or more people movements? I guess both, but I originally meant just the different movements of the culture, uh, government, and their viewpoints on uh, climate change and that kind of thing. Right. Did you get into it all the idea of how climate change is viewed in different cultures and different countries? Yeah. So uh, we talked about what different governments are doing, how strict are their policies. So this was in university. I took a class, Environment 2 or 3, that uh, we were really looking at how does the U.S. versus Canada, you know, how are their laws different? Like, are, are the fines uh, larger in the U.S. or Canada? We're also looking at other countries as well, seeing like, well, how much collaboration is there between Indigenous people and choosing, like, how do you take that kind of mindset or spirituality and apply that into, like, this Western, you know, uh, type of, of laws that govern our countries today? That's a huge question. And finally, I think it's getting a lot more of the attention that it has deserved. How do we bring these two worldviews together? Right. So um, it can be kind of hard because a lot of countries, for example, are capitalistic. And so to break it down, like really to its core, like capitalism is based on exponential growth. Like you need to have that momentum and earth has a finite amount of natural resources of people. And so you have to kind of look at these two different conflicting ideas of, you know, exponential growth, but also knowing that we can't actually grow exponentially forever, like there is a limit on resources and different things like that. So when we have like our governments today, for example, in the US or, or New Zealand, it's important to have to kind of shift away from that mindset and see like, what are the alternative resources? Like, how can we keep the stability and make sure that we're not like, suddenly crumbling into, you know, like, economic disaster. And so one of the things like New Zealand is doing, for example, is, um, They've given um, like this river there, they've given like, it's given its own life, um, you know, it has its own rights and those kind of things. And it was a slow transition of talking with uh, the Maori, uh, the native people, yep. um, and then creating like these boards to hear out what are the big problems to, to the Maori. And, you know, like, what are the agendas of each people and how can we work together to find like a better solution? This is one of the major talking points is to what extent do we need to adjust or even overthrow the current economic system? And there's lots of debate about it, lots of different books about it. And for those who say we need to overturn the economic system, the response to that often is, even if that were true, we probably don't have enough time given the IPCC projections. And at the end of the day, I think the pragmatist would just say, well, what is feasible in the short amount of time that we have? Has that discussion point come up a lot at McGill? Yeah, it has. Oftentimes, we're talking about what's going on in the world right now, like what are the current events? And we talk about, you know, what kind of viewpoint should we be having? You know, like a new guidelines will come out from the IPCC, or um, there's this idea called like scorched earth. Yep. Um, and that's like the idea that everything we do now is like useless. It's hopeless. Like just the world's going to end no matter what, like there's not enough time. But I think that's a very like pessimistic way to live. And that kind of gets you into some existential crisis. So I think it's important that we don't necessarily see it as being over yet. Like there are still a lot of things that we can do. And 
that's something that's really great about the discussions we have at McGill is that the teachers aren't saying like, you have to believe this, you have to believe that. Because uh, one of the great things about McGill is that it is a very uh, diverse uh, student body. Like many students are international students like myself. We all have different viewpoints. We all grew up differently. But in my environmental classes, we do tend to agree that uh, climate change is real, at least because I'm coming from like a, a science uh, background. But I would say like maybe our, our levels of how pessimistic we are or how hopeful we are might differ from person to person. And one of the things that they really stress at McGill is science literacy, especially on social media, like people are putting out posts out there, you know, of information about different stories, but where is this information coming from? And that's one of the things we learned in my class wildlife conservation was how to write a post on social media that is fact-checked, you know, it's easily understood by people that might not be studying environmental science, like anyone can understand it, but it's still an issue that's affecting a lot of people, you know, how can you actually help, um, not just like seeing the problem. That's interesting because we hear about the negative of social media and how it's been leveraged in many disinformation campaigns. And that is true. And I think from a reactionary place, some people are just like, shut it down or completely regulate it. But then that brings up the discussion of freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And is that truly democratic? And I mean, of course, that's extremely important too. Maybe it's a matter of kind of meeting people where they're at. It's like, well, if social media is here and so many people are using it. And this is the world that young people, Generation Z people have grown up with. Use it to your advantage. Use it in a way that is not just combating that disinformation, but is providing accurate and well-vetted information. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Like, it's definitely changed my point of view of social media since going to university. Like, um, growing up, I, I didn't have social media. Like, I chose not to in high school. Um, I was only as I started going into university that I started having like an Instagram, a Facebook. Yep. And, you know, I, I see news and I see, you know, what my friends are liking and they're all from, you know, different backgrounds, different perspectives. And although I might not agree with them, I know that one thing I can do myself is to make sure that what I'm posting, I'm double checking first. Like if there's information, I'll usually just do a quick Google search of a reputable news site that I trust and see like, are they talking about the same thing? And just really doing my homework before I post. Because I think uh, so many people are so quick to post about different things. And then, you know, <laughs> I, I don't want to be the person that has to make like a, a statement about retracting something. I, I just want to make sure that what I'm putting out in the first place is helpful. What are some tips or advice just for putting things out there that are helpful and that are credible? Well, I guess first I would say definitely read all of the text because sometimes you just read the first few sentences of posts and you're like very excited to post it. Or maybe there's a current event and you see all your friends posting about it, but maybe take a second and just think like, is this post actually have all the information I want to share? Or is there a better post out there that might be have all the information you want to share? And even sometimes... I'll see stuff that's out there and I think, mm, I don't, that's not quite exactly what I want to post. So I'll decide to make my own post using Canva, uh, which is very popular for making yeah. like your, your posts look all pretty. So I'll do that. As I said earlier, I would go to Google and just check some of those news sites that I'm really interested in and I believe are, you know, reputable uh, before posting that kind of thing. In your program, have you gotten into evaluating the credibility of sites? Yeah, so uh, one of the things that we often talk about is, is it peer reviewed? Um, is it published? Because I am very heavily in the science 
some of the problems though is that you know current news it takes a while to be peer, peer published for enough people to go through you know your research and that kind of thing so that can be harder when you're trying to do up to the date minute like new exciting technology or research that's been found but we talk about who's posting it what kind of language is being used how is it being shared? Like, do you have to pay money in order to, to put this, uh, you know, in order to get your article published or is it free? Is it open sourced, for example? Yes. Um, and it's just really thinking about where's this content coming from, from what perspective? One thing that often happens is that someone might put up a quote from, say, Albert Einstein and, <laughs> and he might say something about, you know, like the environment and, and, you know, it could be true, but also you have to remember like Albert Einstein is an environmentalist. And that's, that's kind of the trick that often happens is you'll see a scientist post something, but maybe they're not actually a, a climate change you know, specialist. And that's something really important to think about. Oh, it is. And increasingly so with each passing day. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. Ian next met with Alex Dixon, who is also studying at McGill University in Montreal, majoring in bioresource engineering and agronomy. He completed his formative education in Ottawa, Canada. Do you remember just offhand when you first learned the term either climate change or global warming in and around when you first learned that term? It seems like something that's always been present in my mind, but that might just be because it's been so present recently. In terms of my history, I'd have to say for sure before high school and maybe at some point in grades three, three or four, we probably started touching on it slightly in science class or in geography class. Do you remember? remember especially in elementary school if it ever ventured outside science or geography or was it always in that realm no when i was in elementary school i was in the ottawa public district school board and it wasn't a main focus at all i have little siblings who are currently in the school system and when i see projects that they're doing it, it's much more obvious that they have a focus on climate change and environment versus my education which was it was a nice thing that they could touch on if they wanted to. It was up to the teachers primarily, not in the curriculum. And it was never mixed into other coursework. You didn't approach everything with an environmental perspective, like a lot of classes I have now do. It was more just, here's a small section in this entire class that we talk about climate change because it is something that it is part of our current science curriculum but the teachers were in no means experts or even knowledgeable it's just more so this is something that exists so it was kind of an add-on if anything as i remember it yeah was it presented as a solvable problem i mean we we hear so much about the scholarship of effective climate change education and how it has to focus on solutions and we know the psychology of 
doom and gloom and it's very mm -hmm. easy for people to turn off or think about other things when doom and gloom come up was it presented as hey this is something we can do something about or was it fairly strictly like this is a big problem i don't think it even ha was developed enough to be at that point mm. it was i remember there being conversations about there are still many climate deniers or no words like climate crisis or big problems and therefore no conversation about solutions really either more so just that our climate was changing and it's changing faster than it normally does but it wasn't the point wasn't really driven home that this was a large issue that needed to be dealt with or that needed to be solved and then there's also the what i think is an issue of not giving responsibility to kids it always seemed like something that the higher-ups were going to have to deal with that wasn't really my problem that maybe would even be dealt with by the time you know if people were already talking about it when i was in grade three how come we're still at a point now that we haven't come up with substantial solutions so as a kid in my generation it never was the anxiety inducing concern that it became sort of when Greta Thunberg started showing up and the responsibility really seemed to fall on young people. And that answers my next question about when it all sort of clicked. And you would have been, I guess, early university at around that time, 2018? So yeah, that's, it's a gradual process for me. It wasn't, sure. it was never like, oh man, this is something big because I, in high school, I, I knew about it in high school. Yeah. In high school, there was more education than I had, than when I first learned about it. They did tie it into still just geography and science classes, nothing else. But I had teachers that were, who did care more about the environment. So because of that, because of the teachers initiatives, I was exposed to more uh, climate change information. And then I started getting that knowledge about this is an issue that needs to be dealt with. And it sort of throughout between grade nine and grade 12, it started sinking in enough to make me want to go into a field where I would be empowered to do something about this. And then, yeah, at the start of university, it over the past four years, things it's been much more visible in Canada, at least how severely this is going to affect our lives. So growing up, it was, wow, th things might be really bad by the time I'm 50 or things might be really yeah. bad by the time I'm 60. I don't know if, I don't know what the world will look like at that point, but you, my parents, my parents, you won't have to deal with this stuff. It's all going to be on us. And there's yeah. the saying that we've heard as kids growing up from older people saying sort of, we've messed this world up, but it's up to you guys to fix it because we're not going to have to deal with it was sort of the mentality that I'd get from other people. So, but now with the increasing speed at which things are falling apart, it's becoming very evident that this isn't even a problem that our parents won't have to deal with. This is a problem that all of us are currently now dealing with and you find current solutions, regardless if you finished your education, regardless if you um, are still in high school or in primary school or in university, we all have the responsibility and power now 
to make this difference. That's where the people in my peer group are. But then I also see so many people at McGill, even at my campus, which is environmentally focused, who don't have the concerns. They kind of, they don't have the empowerment of feeling that they can do something. It's more so like, what's the difference that I'm going to be able to make? I know I've talked about this in previous episodes. It's kind of like shot glass on the Titanic. Like, okay, yes, I can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not nothing, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like a, a rounding error, so to speak. It's not enough to yeah. really shift the course. And yeah, I've felt that way at certain times. I certainly talk to a lot of people who are of that mind. They're like, what's the point? And, and it's a valid argument. Oh, it is a valid argument. And this is the whole thing is these types of discussions need to have open-ended questions and people need to be heard and not steered in one direction or the other. And I don't know if you've read Michael Mann's recent book, A New Climate War, where he talks about how sort of the shift in climate denialism or skepticism has moved away from outright denialism and more towards deflecting responsibility to individuals. Mm -hmm. And that's resulted in things like diet shaming or flight shaming. And it's not, you know, in our divided Twitter world, at least on certain social media platforms, it seems like it's all or nothing. And Michael Mann's very clear that it, it's not as though individual actions are not important. Of course, they're important. If you adopt a diet that is less carbon heavy in terms of the production of the food that goes on your plate, that is positive, but only relying on individual actions is clearly not enough. And that's really the point of this book is that, you know, things like, I'm sure you've you've heard this, the term carbon footprint was created by BP Oil. Yeah. Did you know that a subscription to Green Teacher includes access to our massive and fast-growing archive of 500-plus ready-to-use activities, lesson plans, and articles? The recording of each new webinar goes into the archive too, and there are 120 of those and counting. To save you time, because educators never have enough of it, right? Everything is organized by topic and age group. Learn more by visiting greenteacher.com slash subscribe. We also have special rates available for bulk orders from your school, board, district, faculty of ed, or organization. As always, all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. Ian also chatted with James Harper of Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation in Treaty 8, Alberta. James just received his Master of Science in Renewable Energy from KTH Royal Institute of Technology and Ecole Polytechnique. He now works as the Business Development Manager with an energy storage developer, NR Store Inc. So do you remember when the topic climate change first came up at school? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so climate change has definitely been a theme. I would say as early as I can remember in sixth grade, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily extensively discussed, I will admit, but it did, it did come up in, in sort of social studies, sort of related topics regarding our, our landscapes, and how our landscapes are changing across Canada. I believe part of the curriculum in, in those grades covers a lot of the Canadian geography, what that looks like, um, you know, the different kinds of, of climate areas, even talking more about just like general weather and, and what, the, what the land and the waters look like of different territories across what is known as Canada, I should say. 
So climate change was just lightly mentioned, mostly in the context of, you know, we're anticipating that some of these some of these areas may begin to change in its composition and patterns in season, all these things. And it wasn't really described thoroughly, but I will say part of part of the piece that I had a little bit more context during that part of my life was also watching The Inconvenient Truth. And that movie, when it came out, I, I, did, I did watch it. I, not also entirely sure what motivated me to do so actually not not that I think about it but mm. ended up watching it and it and the, the the topic of global warming and, and climate change made me a little bit more curious as what was mentioned in school and that movie actually gave me quite a lot more context and a little bit more understanding of what it actually means and how the science works and ultimately like the consequences of, of climate change that's what really, really struck a chord with me and really um, made a big impact on, well, we got to do something and we got to, we got to act fast because, you know, this, the, the changes are, are quite drastic and detrimental in our natural world. And I would like to do something about it. Yeah. And if memory serves the hockey stick graph, you know, the sort of now famous hockey stick graph that Dr. Michael Mann and his team put together was featured quite prominently in that film. And it paints a pretty stark picture. I'm curious because I hear a lot about people describing their educational experience with climate change. And oftentimes there was talk about potential consequences. Was there any talk of mitigation efforts or solutions? I would say there was, again, like I wouldn't say it's as extensive as, as I wanted it to be. But I will say that, you know, especially into my high school conversations, I remember clearly my geography class, we actually did talk about carbon footprints. We talked about um, our household water and, and energy use, you know, quantifying all those things and then measuring against each other, giving us uh, ourselves a little bit more context onto the natural footprints that we that we leave as individuals. And it gave us it gave me in particular quite a big understanding on what my individual role meant and what it, what needed to change. So in that way, mitigation uh, was very discussed, was discussed very much in an in a individual sort of household context and, you know, ways to, to reduce our energy use, for example, you know, household daily changes, reducing your shower times, using less lights than you need to, things like this. And, you know, I actually actually took that in quite a lot. And uh, I think I, I motivated my mom a lot to to change a little bit some of our, our habits and our and our household lifestyle a little bit just to just to reduce our consumption a little bit further. And so, you know, and that's actually a common story I hear from my from my peers is that a lot of the a lot of the the behavioral changes within households come from the younger, uh, the youth of the yeah. households, the the children. And so I remember being that sometimes maybe even a little bit annoying, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I was, I was very uh, motivated uh, from, from school, but also from the sources I was getting outside of school that we needed to do something uh, about climate change and we needed to do something fast. And being able to make those measurable local changes right at home in your own life is an important part of instilling a sense of agency, particularly in young people. I guess the somewhat 
sinister side of this, and this has been documented, I just mentioned Dr. Michael Mann, and he's written quite a bit about this, this idea that focusing too much on personal responsibility and individual actions and things like carbon footprints can in some ways play into the hands of fossil fuel interests that are essentially trying to extend the window of being able to burn fossil fuels as much as possible. And it creates this potential false dichotomy where it's like, it's an either or. It's should we focus on broad scale policy changes or should we focus on individual actions? Well, of course it's both, but we certainly can't lose sight of the fact that individual actions aren't a replacement for these big policy changes. So that leads me to my next question is, as you got through elementary and high school, did the discussion stay on individual actions that people could take? Or did you get into, you know, policy changes, you know, changing our energy grid, changing how we transport ourselves, changing food production, etc.? Yeah, uh, I suppose, like, um, I'm not entirely sure what many, the majority of folks education experience would be. But for me, in particular, policy in general, policy and politics was actually discussed quite extensively in, in my education, not necessarily specific on energy or on climate or anything like that, but just just in general. I believe it was the 2000, was there an election in 2008 or nine? I'm trying to, I'm trying to in remember the US, it now. In 04, 08, 12, et cetera. Yeah. And you know, there was, there was quite a, a lot of interesting classroom discussions I remember having about politics and how we can get involved and how it's important to always weigh in uh, as much as possible on policies and, you know, try to be a little bit analytical when it comes to informing yourself about proposed legislation or, or announcements or things like that. So in that way, it was instilled in general that for at least my, my classes, um, that political involvement was important and is a key responsibility as a citizen. But, you know, the the general sort of, um, it was kept generalized, I should say. It, was, it wasn't necessarily focused on any particular policies or anything like that, which I guess was, was good because it allowed us to, to sort of explore what, what areas of interest we were most into. But then, then again, for me, I didn't necessarily get an opportunity to have facilitate more conversations about climate policy. Right. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. 
So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. We'll now return to each of our guests, this time to hear their suggestions for enhancing environmental education. Here's Patricia's song. As I guess we were talking about earlier, like I didn't really get into the science literacy until I was in university. And I think if I had had that earlier and even just literacy, like that kind of literacy in general is important. You know, like we learn, oh, what is plagiarism? You know, how do you cite something? Like mm. I learned MLA, but there's so many different types of citation styles. Like I think those things are, are really important to learn earlier. Um, is, you know, like, what are all the resources available, not just to rely on your, your textbook or, or an article that your teacher gives you, like, it's important to have those extra resources. And that's kind of one of the sad things is like, I still went to the library and had, you know, the books and the, the papers in person. But these days, you know, it's so much easier just to go online to find different types of, of sources. But I would say another big part of my education that was missing, like in high school, was environment or climate change in the classroom. I, I learned a lot through extracurricular activities, through through volunteerism, through clubs, and just general interest, but we didn't necessarily focus on that as much in the classroom until I got to AP Environmental Science. You know, ninth grade was just uh, like human biology kind of thing, uh, and then it was chemistry and physics, and I think the important thing is to, to realize that the environment is it's all around us and it connects everything. And so you can be teaching the environment through other classes too. Like you can incorporate it into, you know, your history classes, oh, yeah. like English, you know, and that's something that that's going on at McGill too, is working on like incorporating uh, different types of ideas right now. Um, and just like kind of interweaving them. I think the interdisciplinary approach is definitely something that needs to be strengthened. Yeah, that comes up a lot. Lots of momentum about that idea. And it can't all happen just in science class when there's so much that people need to be informed about. And I think that like adds to the mindset of, you know, if you're looking for how are things interconnected, you really notice like how much the environment is like part of everything. Like, for example, I was taking an elective last year in archaeology, prehistoric archaeology. And within that class, like the environment was popping up and not just like, oh, what is a, a peat bog, but also mm. I was taking a class called environmental impact assessment, which is used all over the world. But it, it's before a major project is done, you have to, you know, check like how will this infrastructure like affect the environment. But the interesting thing is that the archaeological um, impact assessment is part of the overall impact assessment process. So I was seeing how in one class I was learning about the environmental impact assessment, like overall, the broad idea of, you know, everything from, well, this uh, what wind farm, like, what's the possibility of, you know, like there being a fire here, you know, like, what's, what's the, the impact of, of a storm or that kind of thing. Then I was also seeing how archaeology can affect the earth, too, and why that's important when making, you know, like a big infrastructure projects. Yeah, I mean, it should be in every class. I mean, how it's not embedded deeply in economics classes is ridiculous. I mean, our economy 
at its core is based on extraction of resources. We should probably know the holistic side of that. Anything else you'd recommend? I would recommend to hear from a more diverse group of voices. Like it doesn't necessarily just have to be your teacher talking to you in the classroom. I think special guests are incredibly important. And what with Zoom and, and you know the internet these days, you can get people from all over the world to talk to you. And you can also, you know, if you can't actually have those connections with people, you can also watch documentaries made by, you know, indigenous environmentalists or different people like you can get those voices, which is really incredible. I think working with community is an important step forward. That way, it's not just like you're reading from a textbook or, or it's passive learning. It's like you're actually talking to someone and in that process of fostering those relationships, you can see if that, you know, maybe there's an opportunity for you to get involved more outside of the classroom, like you can go volunteer and help out. One of the great things about having classes during COVID is that I was able to see people from all over the world. Like my profs knew people from, you know, Barbados. There were people in, in Africa as well that we got to talk to just all over the world. And I think that really helps you um, like see kind of different points of views and, and get that diverse perspective on the environment and helps you come up with, you know, this innovative or different approach to, to how you might have approached the problem. Yeah, that's just so essential. Here is part two of the conversation with Alexander Dixon. Young people need to be educated about this, just like we're educated about math or science or history, without feeling the weight of the world on their shoulders. Because I think everyone should know about it. It's And it can be taught in a way that's not doomsday but yeah i don't know there's the conflict of if everybody knew about this from a young age growing up and they would just know that everything they do has to have some way of tying into at least not impacting the climate negatively not necessarily saving the climate but just understanding that we're here for the long term and your actions have immediate and long-term effects. So if there's some kind of education that gives children, gives young people the responsibility of caring for their earth, not saving it, but caring for their, their environment from a very young age, I think that'd be beneficial. But even that could even just be done through connecting children with the earth, with the soil, with the food systems, rather than having everything removed. Because if you have no connection, to something, you have no incentive to protect it or to keep it healthy. In that vein, a lot of the research suggests that outdoor learning is one of the core components of that. And that certainly aligns with what you just mentioned there, that out of sight, out of mind. If Exactly. If you don't really have any sort of personal connection, if you don't have stories, you know, stories have such a big part to play in our lives. If you don't have stories about time in nature and it doesn't necessarily have to be going out and identifying every wildflower i mean some people mm -hmm. like to do that i personally I, I enjoy doing that but it it's just being out of doors and you know people mm -hmm. like richard louv and many many others have written about risky play and you know games like capture the flag and just figuring stuff out outside for sure 100 percent, and some kind of first-hand interaction where we realize how much we benefit how much is given to us from a healthy earth 
and how important it, uh, it is for us to give back because it can't be a one-way relationship. Yeah, reciprocity. I mean, do you find that that concept comes up, whether it's called that or not? Just is that embedded enough, do you think, into education? Not at all. I haven't seen it in our education at all. Even the environmental or food system classes at my university, which is, or at my campus, is most of the time it's how can you align systems enough to be able to maximize the output? Extractive. Yeah. So even how that might have a roundabout way of saying, if you take care of things better, you can get more out of it, which is true, but it's still not about the relationship. It's about just what you can get out of it, or at least the classes I've taken. I can't speak for the entire campus, I guess. Sure. But I do know there is one class has braiding sweetgrass as a mandatory reading. That's the one. Um, that's the one. So it's good to see that that's starting starting to work its way into the curriculum. But so many of my classes, I wish there was more conversation about reciprocity, about how to give just as much as you take and how necessary it is. And as we know, that relationship with the land based on reciprocity did exist for millennia on Turtle Island, what's now known as North America. And it was a different lifestyle from what we have now, but it was able to continue. And, you know, I think one of the misconceptions about the term sustainability, some people say, well, that's just a certain ideology, but sustainability just means keep doing something. That's all it means. It, it has, it really has nothing to do with green quote unquote, or environment yeah. quote unquote. It's just Continue. It's used that way right now. It's, yeah. it's used that way. So it perhaps it's reframing the word sustainability and getting it back to the roots of its actual meaning is this isn't about taking away things that you like in your livelihood. It's just making sure that whatever we're doing, we can continue doing it. And if we can't continue mm -hmm. doing it, we have to adjust how we go about it so that whatever we're doing is something that can continue or keep going or sustain. Yeah, for sure. Just the whole way the school system is set up. There's so many, you know, like keywords, like clickbait for words like sustainability that just get lumped into the environment, it, green. Yeah. But definitely if there was that focus on taking out the core meaning of the word, the core meaning of the practice and applying that, not just in your science class, not just if you're in an environmental program, but as a core set of belief, a foundation which the education is built on in whatever program you are in. Because in our first year, we do have foundation classes. For example, in science, we have to take physics, chemistry, a math class, yeah. and a few others. But there isn't a mandatory, a mandatory environmental class or a mand mandatory climate change class or sustainability class. And it's up to the professors to tie these things into their projects. So because I'm at an environmental campus, this does happen a lot. But then I meet students from business or medicine or arts, and they haven't had really any education on these things, which to me seem like what everything should be being built off right now. We There shouldn't be the option, if you're pursuing education in university, an undergraduate degree, you should at least at the minimum have to take a class so that you can't be ignorant on this topic. 
That's an excellent way to finish off with. Finally, here are James Harper's suggestions. I would actually advocate for fully or as integrated climate policy solution. Um, you know, this isn't necessarily just a contemporary affairs or a social studies topic. This ranges a lot into, to, uh, into sciences for sure and understanding how climate science works. Again, we don't need to become experts, of course, but, you know, introducing a little bit more of the concepts that are tied with the relationship between carbon emissions and, you know, degrees of warming, what that really means, the implications of, you know, it sounds, it sounds kind of small when you, when you hear it at, at face value at, you know, the one and a half, two degree average global temperature increase. But, you know, I didn't even know about the IPCC report, um, which outlines in very, in very intense detail, yeah. the, the implications of just that half degree makes on a variety of ecosystems across our planet. Um, and I say fully integrated because part of the reason why I got into climate action work and, you know, the career that I'm at uh, right now is, is mostly because of also where I come from, um, being raised in a Cree household as a Nihiao, you know, I was taught a lot about the holistic view of the natural world around us and the importance of balance and the importance of protection and guardianship of the natural world around us. And, you know, for, for not just us, uh, but for several generations ahead. And so when I started thinking about climate, you know, that fits entirely perfectly into why we need to be so proactive now, especially from a young age on informing ourselves on what that responsibility really looks like. So that's why like for, for my education, it was, it was important to get the necessary tools and resources that were a little bit practical from those social studies classes, measuring my own carbon footprint. But what mm -hmm. I think would really go above and beyond is if, if we're taught or taught more about climate action, meaningful climate action in pretty much every single subject, because for me, at least where I grew up and how I grew up, climate, the environment, the natural world, the universe around us is everything, is, is everything that we are responsible for. And it's not, it's not necessarily something that we can just um, silo away or have, uh, have an hour every day to talk about. This is, from my perspective, this is a key piece of, of our shared experience. You mentioned about silos, and I think that represents much of how the education system in much of the Western world has operated for quite some time. And breaking beyond that is gaining some momentum, but I think you, we could all argue that it's not happening quickly enough. And I just finished reading a book by Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, Saving Us, and she talks about how no matter what walk of life someone comes from, climate change does affect them. So whatever is near and dear to their heart and speaks to their identity and their values climate change is relevant to it. And that opens up a lot of opportunities in education, plus the fact that a tremendous number of very driven, innovative people are working on amazing solutions. I mean, you open a book like the Drawdown book or Paul Hawkins' new book, Regeneration, and it's just like, wow, some very sharp people are on this. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's that's what's, you know, so uplifting and hopeful 
is that indeed there are so many, even my cohort completing my, my program in renewable energy, a lot of, a lot of my cohort, um, I see them going off into very cool and interesting fields and, and career paths into designing the future of, of clean emissions-free uh, power and, and energy um, worldwide, I should say. And I will, I will stress that, you know, it's, it's, we need more, we need, we need absolutely pretty much all, all hands on deck. Yeah. If we're, if we're going to be serious and committed towards meeting our, our targets, our goals, because we're running out of time. And, you know, the more people that aren't just advocating for policy change, but also participating in uh, in designing the future of of a, of, a, of our emissions-free energy system, for example, whether that be as an engineer or whether as as a business person executing financing for community-led uh, clean energy projects, for example, you know whether you're a teacher instilling a lot of hope and pride and, and valuable resources for the next generation to be aware and empower themselves into these spaces. Everybody has a role to play. In this in this very important movement and yeah i just i just think that pretty much everyone is a warrior um and this is this is this is the time to act for sure it is the clock is certainly ticking and we have all the tools we need we just have to do it and at the scale that's necessary absolutely and everybody has a role to play everybody has you know everybody can fit into empowering themselves into the into the spaces um, that they feel comfortable in and make meaningful change. Indeed. To get a more complete picture of Jen Satter's experiences with environmental education and their suggestions for improving it, a comprehensive study would need to be completed. Yet, it's important to hear stories and perspectives from the young adults in our respective circles. We hope you have enjoyed hearing from our three guests and we encourage you to keep the conversation going with the young people in your life. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terian. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. It'll go out on all the regular, you know, that phrase, wherever you get your podcasts, which I always kind of laugh at. <laughs> it seems a bit pretentious, but it is on all the regular providers. Um, but we can right. also provide an embeddable code so that you can put a digital button player on a you know, website or social media if, if you want. We have just nice. found that that's a, a nice tool for guests to have. I mean,